It is good to worship with you, brothers and sisters. Uh, Two things I would put on your radar. Uh, Many of you, as you came in, you may have received in your bulletin uh, a prayer card for our search team. We continue to pray that God would provide a pastor of discipleship and music uh, in our congregational meeting here at the end of the month. We'll give a a fuller update on that, but be in prayer. Uh, Also, be in prayer uh, for Retreat 4-6, which is concluding today. Uh, Our young ones... uh, Grades 4th through 6th grade have been out at Shamanah, and we hope and we pray growing in the Lord. Our deep desire is to see young and old trained up to follow Christ. Um, let me allow me just a, a, a short prayer uh, before we get started. Pray with me. Father, we come to you and we pray now that we would sit under your word and that you would use your word to shape us by your spirit. And Lord, thankfully, your spirit is the one who takes the word of God and presses it deep into our heart. So we pray for our congregation. Uh, We pray for others, Uh, even uh, First Baptist and Dave Brodsky this morning. God, we pray that the word of God would go forth in our community and that it would shape us to be faithful followers of Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, this morning we do begin a new series on the character of the church. Now, we might not immediately connect character and church. Often with character, we think of features that make up and distinguish an individual by personality or maybe moral soundness, character. Well, maybe you think of the traits and the distinctive qualities of an old house that has character. But does the church at large, does our church have character? And our aim, Lakewood, is to be faithful followers of Christ, to reproduce faithful followers of Christ. So the character of our church is not to be determined by our preferences, by cultural influences or suggestions, or even our individual personalities. But rather, the local church, Lakewood Church specifically, is to seek to have attributes, traits, a nature, a culture, a reputation, a character that follows Christ, that is shaped by the Scriptures. And that is one of our core values here at Lakewood, to be a people shaped by biblical living. So what characteristics do we see of the local church in the Scriptures that you and I can follow, that we collectively can follow? Our sermon title this morning is The Gathered Church. I'll ask that you grab a copy of the scriptures and turn to Ephesians chapter 4. We'll be in verses 1 through 16. And really, Ephesians 4, this passage, it gives us a theological understanding of why we gather, why we come here. Far too often, we have ideas that sound Christian, but if we're pressed, we don't really have great categories for why. They are Christian. So perhaps you've grown up and someone has told you that going to church is important and good. Well, we know people who've maybe stopped gathering with the body of Christ or just people that aren't that religious and they're just curious. And those people might say something like, you know, I really need to get back to church. Okay, that may be true, but why? What is the basis of our gathering? What is the purpose of our gathering? 
this is 2022, right? Isn't it just going to be a matter of time that you and I, we have these virtual reality gizmos on our face and we'll just gather online rather than in person? Why gather? We gather because it is part of the character, the DNA of the church. You will not find a life isolated, individual, independent, non-communal in the scriptures. That kind of Christianity doesn't exist. Our main idea, our main point simply is this. Faithful followers of Christ gather. They come together. Well, um, look at with me in our passage in Ephesians chapter 4. Paul lays out three realities of our gathering. Uh, the first is this. We gather in unity. In unity. Would you read with me, please, verses 1 through 6? I, therefore, a prisoner for the Lord, urge you, urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. <laughs> there, there is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all, and through all, and in all. Well, this, these verses, this passage really is a remarkable section of verses. If we ask the world around us, how could we get different people together? It would seem an impossible task. How can we have an assembly of old and young, rich and poor, how could there be people who think differently on political policy? How could there be people here that listen to George Strait and Drake? How is that possible? How could we put people together who have different experiences, opposite preferences, and even contrary understandings, the secondary theological issues? What could possibly unify a diverse people? A diverse people that not only live and think differently, but often, and increasingly so in our culture today, a diverse people who don't like people who live and think differently than them, right? As we read Paul here, he comes to the Ephesian church, who, by the way, are wrestling with their own issues, the great Jew-Gentile divide of the early church. They had their own division. And he says in verse 1, therefore, therefore, in light of the gospel of Jesus that I've shared with you in the first three chapters of Ephesians, therefore, in light of that, live according to your calling. Live as a faithful follower of Christ in relationship to other people, he's saying. But notice what he says in verse 3. Look again. Eager to maintain the unity of of the Spirit. You see, my friends, we're told not just to tolerate one another, 
which far too often is the case in our local churches. But we are to be humble, gentle, patient, and loving so we can maintain unity in the Spirit. What is Paul saying here exactly? It's this word maintain in verse 3. I want to sit on for a second. Some of you have a translation that says keep the unity, maintain the unity. See, Paul comes to a divisive church in Ephesus battling with personal and cultural differences. And he comes to them and he says, keep the unity. Maintain, preserve the unity that you already have. And it's not a unity built or manufactured by us or them trying really hard to bend ourselves in our unique lives to conform to someone else. It's a unity, he says in verse 3, in the Spirit. This is a significant teaching or, or doctrine of Christianity. You see, when you and I believe in Jesus, the God-man, that He lived a perfect life and took that perfect life and gave it up by dying on a cross for sinners and sins. That he bore the punishment for sin in our place. And that he rose from the grave quite literally, physically, three days later. When we believe that, when we trust in that, we are forgiven. And as we talked about last week, we are declared righteous. What happens in that moment is we are given not just forgiveness, not just the righteousness of Jesus, but we are given the Spirit of God. We are given new hearts, and the person of God, the Spirit, literally lives inside you. The Spirit seals you, shapes you, and continually renews you until heaven. So when when Paul comes and says, when you gather, when you come together, when you come When you live among brothers and sisters who are different from you, you're already united, he says. Maintain unity. He doesn't say create unity. He says maintain it, keep it. You already have it in the Spirit. The person that you don't like here, or the person you don't agree with here, you are already united with in Christ maintain that unity in spirit, he says, as we gather. But there's another word. It was repeated seven times. Did did you hear it? One. The word one. What exactly is the theological basis for our gathering? What is the basis for our unity? Well, Paul lays it out pretty clearly in verses four through six. We are united in oneness. And you can look again. It says one body, one body of Christ, one spirit that indwells us, one hope of eternal life with him, one Lord who saves us, one faith in the gospel, one baptism or immersion under the waters or in the spirit, And one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. (laughs) My friends, what is the implication of this oneness? What is this unity that we've already had? What what, what could it look like? Well, uh, I read a helpful word this week from one writer. 
who, who said this? When I look at a brother whom I believe is wrong in his perspective or has wronged me, I must look behind the eyes of one who has hurt me or is angry with me because he believes the offense is mine. And I must see Jesus indwelling. This is a person for whom Christ died and in whom the Son of God lives. My brother in Christ is infinitely valuable to God, and therefore, therefore I must honor him with regard for my heart, with the words of my mouth, and with the works of my hands. Each of us for whom Christ died is called to love beyond differences of race or class or perspective or even personality. I am called to say to all those in Christ Jesus, you are my brother, you are my sister. We have the same father. Come, let us love one another beyond our differences, for we have the same identity. Your ultimate identity, my friends, is not dictated by your skin, your job, your marital status, or even your passions and hobbies. Your identity, the scripture says again and again and again, is in Christ, child of God. That is who you are. Like what imagine? Imagine if when we gathered, when we arrived here on a Wednesday or a Sunday, when we spent time at events or in each other's homes, imagine if we looked at one another this way. Oneness. Unity in our gathering. Imagine the impact that that would have on our relationships and our witness to an onlooking world. Even the health of our church. One of our three core values is relational community. And we won't see that truly be a part of our DNA, brothers and sisters, until we cherish the reality of our unity, our oneness in our gathering. Well, praise God, this, this in part is already true of our life. There is unity. There is oneness. But could we not grow more in this? Could we not set aside our differences more often and come together in who we are in Christ? Well, we will. We will grow by God's grace. It will continue to be a mark of our church. But we see not just how we gather in unity. We see also how we gather in service. In service. Read with me, please, verses 7 through 14. But, in contrast, but grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says... When he ascended on high, he led a host of captives, and he gave gifts to men and women. In saying he ascended, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things. 
And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature, the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Well, Paul points us to the grace of Christ in our diversity as faithful followers of Jesus. See, Jesus is the authoritative one, it says, who came to earth, who humbled himself to the lower regions of this world, leaving a throne in heaven. And leaving a throne in heaven to rescue and to leave captive souls out of death and sin. We don't just celebrate this on Easter, but the ascension, the resurrection of Jesus means he is alive today and is the authoritative one. Anyone who pays for the sins of humanity in death and rises and conquers that sin in death, well, they have authority. But what does Jesus do with this authority? Well, verse 7 says, He takes that authority and he graciously bestows gifts on us as he sees fit. The text says, each of us. We often understand grace as it relates to God saving us or God's grace and his patience with us when we mess up. But here we see his grace as it relates to our collective ministry grace. Interestingly, Unlike other places, Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, 1 Peter 4, commentators point out that Paul actually doesn't list any spiritual gifts in our passage. Look at it again. No gifts are listed. Verse 11 says, it lists people. Verse 11, apostles, prophets, evangelists, shepherds, your translation may say pastors, and teachers. So if we stop there, we might jump to the conclusion that Paul is teaching the Ephesians and us today that the work of ministry, our gathering for a service, is best left to the professionals. If we could just get in our church people to function under these titles, the rest of us, we wouldn't have to do anything. The professionals would take care of it. Well, you can read any Barna or church study done in the last 40 years. Churches that believe and operate that way are dying churches. Churches that often don't last beyond the generation in which they currently serve in. So what is the biblical model of gathering in service? Paul continues, we have leaders of the church that are gifted and function in such a way to equip, or quite literally, The word means to mend, adjust, or complete. These leaders, Christ has given the church, are the ones who are to serve under Christ and equip and help complete every believer, every brother and sister, for the work of ministry, it says in verse 12. That is, you and I, according to verse 7, have been given a ministry grace, And the church comes around us and equips us and enables us so that we, all of us, can be a part of the work. The building up of the body of Christ, verse 12 finishes. 
So who exactly does the work of the ministry in the church? Paul says, everyone, all of us. The question comes then, why exactly is this necessary? Why can't we just bring in people with titles? Why can't we just leave it to paid staff to do the work? Well, of course, we could point to the verse that we just read. But why the many rather than the few? The reality is the gifting of the body is diverse. Diverse. Titles and staff will not represent all the needed gifts of a local church. So some can preach, many cannot. Some can hold babies, many make babies cry. Some lead community groups, many don't have that capacity. Some make meals, many order fast food. Some sing and play instruments, many of us cannot. Some sit, listen, and cry with people. Many don't have that gift. Some people build things. Many of you we don't trust with tools. Or as we found out at our men's event on Friday, 80 people plus showed up. Some of the teens and kids in this church have the spiritual gift of axe throwing. And many of the men did not. Each of us, my friends, each of us, each of us has some kind of manifestation of the Spirit of God where our gifts are able to serve the church. And that is needed. We need your gift. But allow me for a moment to say something in application to this reality. The fact that we've all been gifted. We are gathered to serve. While each of us has a gift to use for the work of the ministry, our gifting is not our identity. You get that? Your gift is not your identity. And our gifting is not necessarily where we always get to function. There is a time to say, regardless of my gifts and preferences, I'm going to serve where there's a need. To the wind with your gifts. We have a need. And there is a right and healthy place for gifts. And there is also the reality of jumping in despite of your lack of gifting. You're not the most gifted conversationalist, perhaps. You can still smile and serve on the welcome team. You're not gifted with kids. You can smile and show up to a class or hold a baby to help. You're not gifted with tools. You can show up and offer a helping hand on a workday. You're not gifted in organizing events. You can help recruit and show up and help. You're not especially gifted in leading. That's okay. You can serve anyway, and maybe you'll grow in that. You're not gifted with technology, perhaps. All of you have the ability to push a button and help our audio and live stream teams. Brothers and sisters, are you willing to serve even where you're not gifted? And many of you, are you willing to consider the gifts that God has given you and serve even if it's an inconvenience to you? We desperately need to grow in this as a church, Lakewood. We gather to serve. 
And okay, perhaps, perhaps you're convinced by Paul that each of us have a ministry grace. And whether you are actively serving or neglecting using your gift to serve, you might wonder, what is it all for? What is the purpose? What is the end of gathering to serve? What's the reason? Paul gives us a couple things to consider in our passage. Verse 12 again. Verse 12 tells us the saints' work in the ministry builds up the church, the body of Christ. You see, each of our gifts and services, as we do them, builds up our people. But, but in what way? In what way does it build someone up? Well, I think verse 13 answers that. Verse 13 says that your gathering to serve brings about our attaining of unity. You know what is really unifying to a congregation, brothers and sisters? You know what will really bring Lakewood Church together? All of us serving, finding a role, a way to side by side bring about the knowledge, Paul says, the knowledge of the Son of God to mature us so that you and I would be more like Christ. When we are serving one another, we are both modeling and speaking the truth of Christ. We are helping people in our actions and our teaching to see Jesus and to be changed by him. But we also gather in service because it protects us. Look again at verse 14. So, Paul says, so why, why all these gifts? Why build? Why equip the body of Christ to gather and serve? Verse 14, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Have you considered... Lakewood, that it is part of your responsibility to protect your brothers and sisters here from immaturity and false teaching? Have you considered that the ministry grace given to you is for helping our church remain steadfast to Christ and to his gospel? Have you considered that your lack of gathering in service, your lack of action in helping, you're not using your gifts is actually hurting our church? If God commands us to serve and he's gifted us, each of us, to build and to equip and protect our church, perhaps, perhaps some of us are in sin when we don't gather to serve, but rather we gather to consume. You will not find a consumer Christianity in the scriptures. God help us. What an amazing privilege it is to be gifted ministry grace and to serve and to protect and to build up our church. It really is a family effort. But lastly, we, we, we do gather. We, we gather in unity and in service. And here at the end, here in conclusion, I want to I see here in Paul's final verses of this section that we gather in love. Read, read 15 and 16 with me. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. 
This is central to our unity and service in our gathering. Consider the centrality of love that Paul teaches even in 1 Corinthians 10. So we could frame it this way. If I have theological understandings of unity, but have not love, I have nothing. If if I have great acts of service and gifting as I gather, but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. Our great calling, brothers and sisters, what is to mark the character of our church is a gathering in love, deep affection for one another, a speaking truth to one another in love, to be joined and held together in love. And as he says in verse 16, to work and to serve individually in such a way where we are building up one another in love. How often do we gather with the mindset that I am coming here today to build someone else up in love? Very rarely do we think that way. How do you know if you love the body? That's a good question. How do I know if I love the body of Christ? We will work and serve and help our body grow so that it builds itself up. What, in your preferences? No, no, in love, in Christ. That's our aim. When we gather in love, we should see, hear, and feel warm, genuine, deep affection for one another in Christ. These are your brothers and sisters. Yeah, these people in this room. We are to love our family as we gather. Uh, John 13, 34, Jesus said this, A new commandment I give you, that you love one another, just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. Right from the lips of Christ, the one whom we seek to follow, My friends, may our love for one another be evident to each other and to an onlooking Brainerd Lakes area. May we show up with a renewed passion to be unified, to serve, and to love because faithful followers of Christ gather. We gather. And you know what's so amazing about gathering as a body? The Lord uses that to teach us graciously that this life is not about us. We gather not, again, for our own preferences or our own building up, but but what ultimately is behind the building up of the body of Christ? Is it not the glory of God? Is your not gathering and building and equipping and your unity in Jesus not make Jesus look amazing? People will not be convinced that Jesus is what they need by our clever theological arguments, by our memes, by our angry social media posts. What will demonstrate that Jesus Christ is the risen Savior of the world is how we gather 
in oneness, in unity, in service, and in love for one another. The greatest apologetic for the church and the risen Lord is our changed hearts and lives towards one another. So we gather. And I'm glad you're here. I'm so glad you're here. And especially on a communion Sunday. Because really our gathering, is it not summed up in some ways in our communion? So we, we come here this morning, uh, the first of the month, we, we, we take communion individually in, in a closet by ourselves? No, in a gathered body. We come here collectively telling one another, reminding one another, the body of Christ was broken for us. The blood of Christ was shed on our behalf. We gather, not as a country club, not in our own name, but we gather in light of what has taken place on our behalf. I'll ask those that are serving communion to come forward. And if you're here and you are a faithful follower of Christ, now I didn't say perfect, did I? If you are an imperfect, flawed, faithful follower of Christ, this meal is for you. This meal is for a family that recognize we are flawed and sinful and in need of grace. But oh God, we remember, we remember when we take the bread and the juice, what Christ did on our behalf, we remember that Jesus is enough. We remember that it's on his work and obedience that we are accepted by God and not our own. We remember. And if you're here this morning and you're considering Christianity, uh, if you're visiting with us, thank you for being here. This meal is not for you. But rather, this meal is for those who have trusted Christ. And oftentimes, the Lord uses communion and those observing communion to even shape and challenge their own heart about their need for Christ, about their need for unity and service and for love. So pray with me. Father, uh, that's what we pray in this moment that as we observe communion now, we would be reminded of the deep, deep love of Jesus. That we would remember that God is for us. That we would remember that we gather here to take this meal as a unified body. There is one Lord. There is one God and Father above all. Father, thank you. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.